um, early conversations about this were our faith subcommittee, the faith subcommittee of the task force on racial inequities, um, 27 member multi multi sector task force coming together to focus on the disparities that have been happening with regard to COVID. Um, there is a faith subcommittee and that faith subcommittee has been looking for a few opportunities to just share some message and much, much of that message started we were going to talk about vaccines that was the plan we were going to talk about vaccines um faith and vaccines but i think um because we did not have a vaccine on racial inequities um 27 member multi oh because we did not have a vaccine expert um to join us on today we decided that the conversation would be about faith um, mental health and COVID. And so Renita would bring us mental health perspective, although all of us are wrestling it with that right now. Um, you all will bring the faith perspective and Deborah is our health expert. She does know a little bit about vaccines. She's an, a trained epidemiologist, 20 plus years experience in the space. And so whenever we start leaning toward health or health related topics, then Deborah or Dr. Reynolds will usually join us. He actually had something else going on today. We start to lend to them. And I'm your resident, um, sincerely ignorant host who knows very little about everything. And so I just pop questions. And sometimes it's just what um, well, Ray Ray and Pookie might be thinking. It might be some stuff I heard around the house. It might be something that I'm thinking that's sincerely ignorant. And so um, we just kind of have the conversation going from there. So there is no real agenda. It's just gotcha. like, you all got it. Um, people like to hear candid, unfiltered, uncut responses to community issues. And this isn't just a community issue right now, right? We're talking about a national slash global um, issue or pandemic. And so we're all wrestling through this together. To, to, so to have some folks like you all on the line to be responsive to people as they are wrestling with these questions about their mental health, um, the comfort of being at home, but quite frankly, in some place, some people would say the prisons of being at home. What is it? What is depression looking like right now? And what is the faith community's role in supporting? And what has it been? And how is how has it evolved? I mean, I got all kind of random questions about it, but I'm sure this is stuff that is isn't it, isn't new to you all. It's is what you do. And so I think this is the point at which um, I cannot see Deborah. How many people we have signed on? But but our good friend Alejandro, who is in the background, will know at what point to kind of cut the beginning part of this and allow people to kind of jump into a conversation. So you just shared. We've got about 10 people on. I'm sure more folks will start to join. And so I'll just start by saying thank you to everyone who joined us. Before I um, jumped into this conversation, I gave a brief overview. I, ser I serve as the president and CEO at the Community Foundation of Greater Flint. I also serve as the chair of the Task Force on Racial Inequities which is a 27 member multi-sector task force that's come together to ensure that our, our community is doing its best to um, curb the disparities that exist with regard to COVID. And while we've done a decent job, or at least we, we've done it, we, we've, we had um, some successes in that season between the start of it, the COVID in March and October, the holidays are presenting a new challenge and we have to figure out what we do to provide the comfort and I would say information to communities to ensure that they can continue to protect themselves, the people that they love, while also living a balanced life. And I know, Renita, um, I'm going to have everyone introduce themselves. When we start talking about balance, um, balance, mental health, and faith, people don't usually kind of pull those things together. When you start talking about your, your mental health, you don't always think about faith. And when you start talking about um, religious communities and those those 
quite frankly, one of the largest groups of civil individuals in our community that actually cross sectors, they cross races, they cross gender. Um, you don't always think about mental health when you start talking about how they come together and what they provide for parishioners. And so that said, we have an amazing set of folks that have joined us today. I'm gonna have everyone introduce themselves and then we're gonna jump into some questions. I'll start with, um, with Renita Bingham. Hello, hello, um, I'm Renita Bingham and thank you first and foremost for having me share this space with you. I totally understand that um, we are all um, in this um, unprecedented space that um, we're trying to navigate. So um, forgive me if I don't have all the answers. I'm gonna just come out and say it right up front. I do not have all the answers, nor do I think anybody has all the answers. Um, at this time, um, during this time that we're going through, but I will um, share with you some of the things that um, I currently see. Uh, right now, I am in uh, finishing up my internship um, in my master's program for mental health clinical counseling, and um, I'm seeing clients every day that are um, exhibiting um, maybe the same signs that everybody's having, depression, um, anxiety, um, a lack of motivation, and things of that nature, but I'll share those things. I also am a, a manager of education at Planned Parenthood. That's one of the um, assignments that I currently am on and it's a fulfilling and yet learning experience. When you talk about diversity and inclusion, I'm learning so much and I believe that uh, myself as a Christian, um, I was clearly a fish out of water um, coming into this space, but I've learned so much that I believe that um, I can share with the faith community as well. So. Uh, Again, um, different hats that I wear, but um, right now, um, if I can answer questions in regards to the mental health um, crisis, because definitely during this pandemic, it's a mental health crisis as well. Um, I will I greatly appreciate um, all the questions and answers if I can if I can help in any way. So thank you for having me. No problem. And then I got two two of my brothers here. One brother Womack, if you can share. Appreciate this opportunity just to come and wrestle with you all around these issues that are impacting our community adversely. So first and foremost, I'm a husband. Roshana Womack is my lovely wife, and I'm a father of three boys, Ngozi Osei and Ande Womack. So that's my primary hat. The, the secondary one is I'm academic advisor and adjunct faculty in the social work department at the University of Michigan Flint. Another hat I wear, associate pastor on staff, pastor of community connections at Flint Central Church of the Nazarene. And then um, the other things that I do, background is in social work, 40 plus years, macro, micro. Um, but my, my heart and my passion is really just, as Jesus did, you know, becoming flesh and hanging out in the community, really just walking um, those lines within um, our communities where people are just you know, trying to amplify their humanity. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation um, with you all, my brothers and sisters, and with the community as a whole. Thank you, and uh, Brother Tillman. How you doing, everybody? Thank you, Mr. Oliver, Dr. Holden. I appreciate this opportunity to share this space with um, our fellow uh, panelists today. Um, pleasure to meet you, look forward to sharing. I think it's a very unique conversation and necessary um, as it pertains to my position. Uh, my name is Ezra Tillman, pastor of the First Trinity Missionary Baptist Church, and I'm one of those people and preachers that believe that you lead Jesus and therapists. 
So uh, I hope today that something will be said to help us and to address some issues that um, are systemic, some things are continual, some things that um, can keep some prevention of what we're dealing with, which is attacking our community uh, in a very, very dangerous way and drastic way. And so I look forward to learning from the panel as well as adding my two cents. Um, I'm known to this community as serving um, through the water crisis um, on different panels around uh, the city uh, boards. Uh, so I'm learning my way as well, trying to make sure I give some voice and perspective to our community at large. So thank you for this opportunity to share. No, thank you. And then I will, just before going to my co-pilot, I'm gonna have to say he, he hasn't added this to his resume yet, obviously. Um, but Pastor Tillman is also uh, one of the newest members of the Community Foundation of Greater Flint Board of Trustees. And so I will be on my best my best behavior today, provided <laughs> one of my bosses um, is on the call. But um, thank you so much for joining um, and giving your talents to the Community Foundation. Um, and then my co-pilot, always my co-pilot, always look forward to these opportunities over the weekend to kind of hang out uh, with my good friend, Dr. Deborah Furholden. If you can just do a bit of an introduction. Great, I'm Deborah Furholden. I, you can call me Deborah. You can call me Dr. Deb. That's what everybody in Baltimore, which is where I came from, um, calls me. I'm an epidemiologist, Hopkins trained. Everybody goes woo-woo Hopkins. Uh, <laughs> I've been at this for 21 years. I got my PhD in 1999. I was seven. And then, um, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I really, I do the work I do by calling. Um, and because I am somebody who's driven by data, but not tone deaf to the very real issues um, that faith, face our community and also a woman of faith, I appreciate these kinds of conversations. What I've learned during COVID is things that I used to say were not my problem. You know, I'm just speaking from public health. Like we shouldn't be reopening this, we need that. I was kind of tone deaf to the complexities and the real need to have multiple stakeholders and multiple sectors around the table. So I just thank God for discernment and I've grown a lot um, in this season. So I'm looking forward to not just this conversation, but the partnership. And my promise to you is I will be a better partner and a partner that is not tone deaf to the complexities of it and meet our community where they are. No, I appreciate you saying that. It almost leads to a first question for me, and I'm going to direct this question to my brothers, um, Brother Womack and Brother Tillman. Just um, you, you, you don't know what you don't know until, until you know it, and then you know what you can't unknow it. Um, and so I, I grew up in a Black church, and, and when I say I grew up in it, I mean Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Monday, we had Bible study. On Tuesdays, we had choir rehearsal. On Wednesday, we had another Bible study. It was really for seniors, but I had to go because I was a kid and I played the drums to open up. And Thursday, we had choir rehearsal again. Friday night, we had sunshine. I mean, I was in church consistently almost six, seven days a week. Both of my aunts are actually pastors, um, were pastors. And so I've, um, I've been around and I, and I understand the trust that we have in those faith leaders. And so in times like this, so, I mean, and another thing that I've always heard is uh, relationships develop at the speed of trust and trust takes time. And the time is the one thing that we don't have a whole lot of. And so when people invest that time in the religious community that they're in, the church family that they hold, in many cases, the family that their family, the church family that their family has. So they know you as a kid. They knew you growing up. They knew you before you acquired some of these, as my, my aunt would say, some of these worldly things that you have. Um, those are the folks that you're closest to. And when things get tough. When things get difficult, that's usually who you turn to for information, um, for advice, for therapy. Um, how has this moment, 
and I'm gonna say this COVID moment, this March until November moment or December moment kind of changed you or how have you had to evolve as a leader in that space? Um, for me, I think um, because we're in Flint, Michigan and all of the devastation our community faced uh, because of the water crisis, uh, this was another smack in the face with COVID, uh, but we was already dealing with depression. We was already dealing with um, children um, having issues of self-esteem and things of that nature, whatever. So as a, as a church, uh, we were able to be part of a few other churches that were in partnership with um, a local uh, Enos um, counseling center to try to provide some type of support uh, and, and understanding that outside the need and resource of water, you got to deal with people's minds, emotions, and especially those who children have been impacted by it, and then they're going through because the child know what's going on. The school system have set anything in place to deal with the needs of the child. But worrying about police, if they have stopped them or killed them or hurt them because they don't know how to um, culturally address the issues of kids who, who have swung from being an A student to a D or F student within one semester. So for me, my whole ministry perspective has been that, yes, yeah, one thing to preach to you, uh, but our responsibility as leaders also is to be an example. And that means you have to live the faith. And that means you got to understand what people live at. So you're not just listen to people. I intentionally go to the barbershop because I want to hear what people are saying. And I, I, I add my two pieces. So I know that the preacher is actually in the room too. So you can actually talk to people, as you said, because relationships are built. Um, like you said, time is a matter. Uh, I like the quote you use. I'll make sure I look back and write that down. But uh, I definitely understand that relationships are based, based upon trust. And we are already in a position of mistrust as the black church in this particular time and season of the black church. But at the core of it, we're still a central part of it because so many of the things around the church no longer exist. You close down recreation centers, you close down boys and girls clubs, you close down, you know, pal teams and all that stuff. So coaches and principals and other people don't have that place to be a medium of getting information to the community. So uh, although we don't respect the church, the politician does, they still understand the way to get information through is getting to the church. So I try my best to make sure I understand what people live at and understand the perspectives and then preach to it because me preaching about something and not understanding it doesn't help the person to see the light of it. So that's my position of what I've learned this season is sometimes you got to come off that horse. You need to sit where people sit at. You need to sit there and deal with yourself. Sometimes we're too busy doing the work and not realizing our own health, our own needs, our own concerns. And I think a lot of preachers uh, has dealt with themselves during COVID as well. And I think they preaching better or they've been exposed as a preacher because they haven't done better. Thank you, Brother Womack. So yeah, I think one of the things I'm always wrestling with is, is my approach to life relational or institutional, right? And so as a man of faith, right, when I'm in spaces with the community, they wanna know you are gonna show up. And then, you know, the words of the, the, the famous uh, prophetess, Alicia Keys, show me love, right? They wanna know if you are gonna show me love, right? And love is a verb, right? It extends itself. And so trust, you just don't get trust because for the sake of trust, right? Trust is a manifestation of a loving, caring, wholehearted relationship with someone else. My wife don't trust me just for the sake of trust. She trusts me because she know I love her. And so the question is, as a shepherd, right? Do the sheep know that I love them? The other question, and I'm regurgitating this from this other sister, right? What is the evidence that the church has shown that it loves the black community historically, right? That's what I'm wrestling with because there's some questions there. 
has the church shown that they love black and brown people in disinvested communities? And so that's what that's where I'm at right now. I'm wrestling with how do I show love in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of another trauma that has presented itself in our community, right? And so one of the things I heard from this one brother, as a shepherd, my job is to feed the sheep, right? To preach the gospel. But also as a shepherd, my job is to protect the sheep from the wolves. And so if my faith doesn't address injustice, then you got to question the object of my faith as a pastor. Wow. So, so, so Redita, um, as we start thinking about, I'm, I'm going to lean on to this relational or institutional, right? Because in mm -hmm. most cases, we see the faith relationships that we have as, as relational. At least that's, mm -hmm. that's where the love, that's where the trust comes from, right? That engagement, the institutional piece of it, we start talking about mental health. I see that as an institution. I don't see that as a relational thing. In most cases, when I'm getting, if I'm going to receive some type of mental health services, I'm going to a place that is not a cousin, is not a, there's not a close friend. That's a place that I feel like is trained. You actually talked a bit about your training and where you are in that process. Mm -hmm. So how do we blend those two worlds? those worlds where you have this relational trust and then you have this institutional trust of these institutional spaces. Um, and how do you blend those two worlds? And what is this moment, if I'm not asking too much, but what is this moment actually created as an intersection between those two worlds? You know, that's an interesting conversation. And I don't, I don't think that it's, um, it's separate because in the space of mental health, the first thing that we learn is to build trust with our client. So if you do not have trust, then the relationship, the therapeutic relationship won't work, period. And um, the same thing with, with, the, with the church, if you don't trust your pastor, um, you're not going to grow in the word at all. So when we when you talk about the intersectionality of these two spaces, um, I had the opportunity to work in church administration for four years, and I learned that um, communication is the downfall of churches. Um, Pastor Tillman talked about communication um, a little while ago, and I truly believe that in this time, the lack of communication that um, the church is providing for the community, that speaks to love too, uh, Pastor Womack. And then in the space of mental health, the lack of communication when, when in terms of uh, mental health care and providing the client with um, the facts of what they're going through, not sugarcoating it, not saying like, oh, you, you, you're okay. No, it, you're, you're valid in your thoughts and um, in the processes that's going through. So we start with trust. Um, we start, we talked about mistrust as well. So those kind of things, they overlap in several places. Um, the mistrust, the communication, or the miscommunication. Um, and then um, I believe that um, we have a unique opportunity at this time to bridge the gap um, for mental health and for um, faith, the faith community. Um, oftentimes you see, well, here recently you've seen pastors um, kind of stepping away from the pulpit or their, their shepherd to their, um, their flock to, to kind of take a, a, a mental break because they, they have um, exhausted themselves in the realm of trying to provide um, um, theology and uh, mental health care for, for their, for their um, sheep. Um, Pastor Tillman talked about he believed in therapists and Jesus, and I do as well. Um, and so when you learn your capacity and what you can do um, in the terms of the faith community, if we have the opportunity to bridge that gap, 
and say, you know what, I'm going to refer you to um, this mental health professional that can take you a little bit further in this way, instead of trying to take on that um, space and that responsibility of, um, of, of kind of healing them in the mental health realm um, as well. I think that we're doing um, we're not doing them a, a great um, service uh, in, in that way. So there's a unique opportunity for us to kind of bridge the gap, make partnerships, community partnerships with those healthcare professionals that can help navigate this space a little bit better because they are trained in that way. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna force you into this space, Dr. Deborah. I'm just gonna let you jump in um, however you wanna jump in. Question, because you know, the, the, and I, I've had webinars with Dr. Fauci, uh, Dr. Fauci's boss, who's the head of NIH, Francis Collins, mm -hmm. CDC director, Robert Redfield. I asked them all about COVID equity. And the question that they asked me was, can you help us get better uptake and um, compliance with participation from African-Americans in these vaccine trials? And can you also uh, help us to restore trust in the African-American community with the healthcare and medical sector. And my answer was, heck no. I'm not leveraging my relationship, my name, my all of that, because I don't have the trust in the relationship with you. The, to me, very valid mistrust that you see in the African-American community, to me, is well-earned. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm the mom of a young Black boy. And to have that young black boy at six, seven, eight, I didn't even realize how many people had had the talk with him, right? And I always equated to, that's my son. I would not send him out in the dead of winter without a coat. So I'm not gonna send him out in the world without a conversation about how he might be perceived and people might interact with him based on nothing more than the fact he's a black boy. I still fundamentally believe we live in a world that's very unfair, but now we're having all of these leaders leaning on leaders in the African-American community, asking us to leverage the trust and relationships that we've built in community to serve a need. While as a public health professional, I see the important need for prevention. I see the important need for a safe and credible vaccine to be distributed and administered equitably in our community. I would love to hear from our faith leaders and also from our healthcare leader, um, what, where do you stand on that? What would be your response to a Dr. Fauci who would come to you? And that's what they're doing. They're saying, get us in. Tell your people this is okay. Tell your people this is safe. What do we need? We, you know, he said, you know, it's, it's about relationships and, and relationships are built on trust and trust takes time. They developed the vaccine at warp speed and they're trying to skip a bunch of processes in the trust and, trust and relationship building process. So I'm curious what, what, where you are on that. What do you see as the role of the faith community and what do we need from these leaders whose ear I've got if they want us to leverage our trust and relationship in the African-American community? I personally stand uh, in a position, I'm an I'm a old uh, millennial raised by Southerner, Silent Year, Baby Boomer. And, um, and I was raised, your, your name means something, you know, your word means something. So I understand and was trained that you don't allow your pulpit to become a, a platform. And that has always been the position of anyone who wants to get into a community, as I stated before, get the black preacher, right? And in many cases, uh, the preacher can be bought. 
And that's a culture across the board, whatever. You can find somebody that can, that can be bought. And so uh, my position has been, I'd rather go grit my teeth and, and have my conviction about what I'm sure about before I expose something to the people I'm responsible for and then end up you know, uh, suffering loss. And so for me, uh, call it pride or not, I have some questions. I have some concerns uh, about the vaccine. I got some questions about the test. Um, my concern was uh, they're being available, uh, why it took so long, what was that you found that was in this particular test to let you detect it, but you can't find so long to get a vaccine to fix it. Uh, you know, I can't go out here and, and just put a platform and say, okay, hey, come by the church and, and, and you can use this platform to get into community because uh, many people use that as a means of gaining membership. But in our community, uh, and as we said before about relationship and institution, people think the church is the uh, welfare office or think it's the Red Cross, but it's also the most neglected place in the community and the most, you know, uh, place uh, contacted for help. You know, I, I think about that often about as a young millennial pastor in a traditional uh, setting in a poverty driven city, what are you risking when you open these platforms to a community that's already taken advantage of, misused, abused? And in this case, as I experienced the water crisis, um was was a, a plan it, it was part of a structure of a, a greater plan and we've seen across this country that it was no love shown to flint uh it, the predominantly blacks are there or whatever so they get over it we change the news feed so i can't let that again be a platform to say okay dr fauci come in because you've been the most consistent one talking and you come here and you can put set up shop and then they come out first street and i get some members right so i i, I made my choice to say i'm gonna watch as the Bible say, watch and pray. That means you're praying with your eyes open. So you can see, be conscious, walk whatever term you want to use to make sure you got some sense about what's going on. And then by uh, your conviction, by how God speaks to you, because out of it being relational and institutional, the church is spiritual. And that's that's outside the bond, the bounds of, of the building. And I think it's at its best right now, because if anybody um, is being effective in COVID, it's the word of God. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm just gonna jump in. It's like double dutch, right? Let me jump in while <laughs> while y'all turn that rope, right? And I'm gonna jump right back out, right? Jump uh, in. You you you're not gonna catch me drinking a glass of water saying the water's safe, right? And I ain't gonna say no names, right? I'm mm. I'm not gonna be that man or woman, <laughs> right? What I'm gonna say is what everybody been saying to me, brother. I'm gonna put some time on it. I'm from Missouri. You gotta show me right because there is no evidence that demonstrates you love me, right? And matter of fact, there's been evidence that you've been put me in a spot and the sister uh, Michelle Alexander talks about it in the new Jim Crow. You giving me the choice of being exploited or marginalized. Is that really a choice? You see what I'm saying? Cause what I'm hearing is people saying like, if I don't take the vaccine, are you going to prevent me from operating in certain spaces because I don't have the, the vaccine? Are you going to restrict me? Right? Because I don't say yes. On the other hand, I don't know the efficacy of the vaccine, right? And historic history has shown that you've exploited me in that space, right? So, so if you want to come into the community, you got to speak to that first, that macro piece, right? Well, we're always positioned between exploitation and marginalization, right? If you don't speak to that, I can't help you. And, I, and I'm, I'm just having a conversation with my wife last night. She going to sleep and Fauci on, you know, talking, da, 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 da. And she said, I heard this one physician say, why is it that phase one is not framed around those who are marginalized, right? 
if we're saying the majority of cases impact black and brown people, right? And that's why the frontline workers are being overly exposed, right? Then why not have those marginalized, i.e. those who are on what? Medicare and Medicaid be within the first phase if we get to the point where we trust a vaccine, right? So, so how do you roll this speech that? Well, I, I have a question. I want to follow up and pick a little bit, hold which on, is on, that- I know you got to okay. follow up, but I want to make sure Renita didn't have something that she wanted to say on that first question that you threw out. Um, so my position on it is being an advocate. Right. And, and when I mean advocate, I mean, not like just taking the shot and saying, yeah, I did it. And here, here we go. We gonna roll with it. No, um, my, my advocacy comes with asking questions and empowering folks in the community to ask the questions. You don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer. And so ask the question. And I always um, say, like, if you don't know, if you're not sure, then don't do it. Um, and so with this new vaccine that's coming out that no one knows, and we're still in trials, um, yeah, I'm, I'm an advocate. And I say, ask the questions. And if you don't know the questions to ask, um, here's a couple um, to, to ask, like, what's the efficacy of it? Like, how long does it take? What are the, what are the symptoms or the symptomologies or um, the ramifications of, of, of taking this? Do you know that? You don't know the answers. And so... Um, as a person who has worked in the community with Miss um, Yvonne Lewis um, on the flu campaign, working with the CDC before, and we worked in the community to do flu clinics, um, I think it was like in 2013, um, and we were, we were like the voices of the flu and the faces of the flu vaccine, and I was able to, to take that shot. Why? Because I believed in it, and I took it, and I was protected over it prior to coming to the community. So right now I take the stance and say, no, I do not know. Um, and I cannot fully say that I support it because, and this is just me, because I don't know the answers. Um, like um, Dr. Deb was saying earlier, I don't want to, you know, take that in and, and just say, yes, we, it's okay. Um, Dr. Fauci said it was okay, even though I talked to him, I don't know that for sure. And I don't want to um, endanger people when they are at their weakest. It's so many people, so many marginalized people right now in our community who are weak and getting the flu, I mean, getting the um, COVID vaccine, that's not their top priority. Um, they're hungry, right? It's so many people who are hungry, so that's not a priority for them. So like I said, um, my point is being an advocate and, and asking the questions. And if they can't um, formulate the questions, then, I, then I'll help ask the questions for them. Thank you, Renee. Can I jump in on that? I think she made a valid point that we may didn't speak to uh, as the church of why it's so much pressure on the actual leader to give an answer. It's because within our community, as we know, the makeup is that people don't read, right? Mm -hmm. We in a, in a unique place, you know, here in Flint, Michigan, a lot of people listen to radio on Saturday morning. A lot of people of our age, we ain't listen to radio for no news. Everything now that's funded to us is by social media. By way of our president or not, whatever, I guess that's how we figure information. You tweet it, right? So we don't know the, the, the foundation. We don't know the facts. We don't know the studies or the information that's going there. So we have to be an advocate because people expect that my trusted source, I believe that my pastor know, <laughs> right? So, so we got to read everything, right? Or we got to stay in touch with everything to be relevant, not only on Sunday morning or Bible class, but to speak to the social issues of our community because we know people don't tend to research themselves unless they're trying to debunk anything you try to preach or teach anyway. But for the most part, for a trusted source, 
They're saying, I need to hear my leader say, what's your position on it? That was one of my traps of about how people was trying to sign up for the lawsuit that came to city pass. Think about the lawyers. I don't know. You know, so I, I can't say that. However, I think you need to consider that if you have been impacted by this, you know, look and see how this lawsuit may impact your life, your family, and your kids. So that is the pressure we have. Do we get the right answers? Do we have the right resources as an advocate to report back? Mm -hmm. Because the anxiety is, I don't know. I don't know who to trust. I, I don't, I hear what CNN is saying. I hear what the news is saying, or it ain't been covered at all locally. I don't know. What do you say, Rep? So that's the pressure we have actually as being an advocate of, you know, are we getting the right information, how we feel about it, and then how are we going to disseminate it back to a community that is hard to get facts. So if I could just pick for a second, because uh, I was I was here in, I think it was 2016 when uh, Bernie Sanders came to Flint and he met with a group of uh, Flint youth and Flint stakeholders and he asked the critical question. He said, what can I do for you? What do you want? What do you need? What can I do for you? And some of the answers that people gave, I was really surprised. People spoke a lot about, we wanna be honored. We wanna be heard. We wanna you know, be respected. We wanna be restored. And he was sort of shaking his head. And then when it got to me, I was like, I'd like a billion dollars set aside in the federal budget that's earmarked for Flint, that's run by a group of Flint chosen, not our elected, but a newly panel of Flint chosen leaders. I'd like a commitment from the federal government for at least $100 million to repair our aging and now damaged water infrastructure. I, I'm like, we got, what, what do we like? What we, I mean, yeah, yeah, like restore me the whole. I don't even know what that I get what's underneath of it. But how you can restore us the whole is ensure that we get proper restitution for what people had to endure. How we can be restored to whole is we need $100 million set aside to repair the aging water infrastructure. How we can be restored to whole is we need our voices elevated. So how about a congressional task force of Flint pastors and other key stakeholders who have the ear of Congress and have already made built in arm for advocacy for the kind of resources that we need. Like that's just how my mind works. It starts to deal with the very specific things. And, and having been in touch with a lot of pastors in Flint, I know, for example, payroll protection passed a lot of our churches by. Mm -hmm. You know, those that can do and those that are privileged to have a way of not even jumping to the front of the line. They were born at the front of the line. They don't even have to do much. That's the way privilege works. And so we saw a lot of the big corporations snatch up the first two waves of payroll protection. And we've got churches that are struggling, even though the doors aren't open, the work goes on. So I say things like, if you really care, and if you see the church, especially the African-American church as a partner and helping to turn the tides on COVID, how about an airmark set aside for payroll protection programs specifically designed for African-American churches in particular communities. Like, I'm curious if you all have given some thought to if we are going to now at warp speed develop and cement trust and strengthen these relationships, what would be the ask? What do we actually need? Because that's the thing we need to be demanding. We got a new administration coming in and don't get me wrong, I am beyond overjoyed that this change is coming but I know the work is just beginning. I have no pie-eyed 
ideas about this new in, uh, administration is going to solve all of our problems, nor do right by us, but for the fact that we're going to keep our foot on their necks. So the question is, what's the ask? What that's, do we actually want and need? That's a great question. It's been the question for the last 40 years. You know, it, you know, you got, you know, I, I try to study this stuff because I think what we are right now is a remake of the 60s, right? This is our experience of social unrest and, and, and so on and so on. And But you have all these other compartmentalized areas that people have their own agenda, right? You got NAN over here. You got, you know, until freedom over here. You got, you know, NAACP over here. And everybody got a different ask. No one comes to the same room to say, okay, well, you lead. I'm going to get behind you and make it happen. And so in every area of the Black community, it's a problem because we all got different views of what is the ask. And, and so, so even locally, now, you, you can always start at home. Mm -hmm. Like you said, pinpoint those people, not only who preachers, pastors, but who actually do the work, who has credibility, who has you know a track record, who, uh, who are effective to be at that table, not just to be in the room to say, I'm taking a picture, but be in the room because you know my voice will make a difference with these voters in Flint. Mm -hmm. And make sure that person at the table, along whoever else is a stakeholder in the city, be it Mott or whoever else like that to say, listen, this what has to happen for our people, our constituents, our, our, our city, our school district, et cetera, et cetera. And so we want these four things done, but you will be pulling teeth because everybody won't be up front, right? So it ain't about the people anymore. It's about, okay, who calling my name? And that always become the problem why when it gets to us, there's always a skewed view of what is the actual ask. We know all the problems. We complain about them, we point them out, but who's going to bring a solution? I think that's the wrestle on every level of Black America. I think it's the thing we need to develop at warp speed. Because guess what? Resources, we are right now at risk of the government, air quote, being shut down because they can't reach resolve on what this next stimulus package, this next relief package. We've heard about the HEROES Act. I'm like, this is a war with no heroes. To me, there are no heroes here. There's a lot of, I, I'm not, this is not my opinion. There's a lot of casualties. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Of this, right? We're seeing record numbers of people dying, 3,000 people a day. Remember when it was 1,000 a day and we were up in arms? I almost feel like people have gone numb because now that rate, would, at our worst, we're now three times that. So this is not like we need to at warp speed figure out what is the ask. And I will tell you, I personally think perfection is the worst enemy of progress. We will never move forward if we have to wait until we've got consensus, everybody on the same page. And I know it's funny, right? You can't have a band if everybody wants to be the lead singer. Somebody got to, you know, move the equipment around. Somebody got to play the drums. Somebody got to be on backup. Somebody got to you know, sing the high notes, the low notes and all of that. And in the meantime, we just, we got to, we got to innovate. But, but Doc, let me say this. So, so it's interesting that you say that, because I want to go back to something Pastor Tillman said earlier. You said, watch and pray. And I mean, you're praying with your eyes open. I appreciated that. And it had me thinking, I'm sitting here thinking, so we have the, we have the microphone, like we, we've got the voice people, we got the person with the platform in front of us, but they're also saying that they're watching, but watching what? Right. And so uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Moses Bingham, would always say uh, we, 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 we talk a lot about Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, and Sonic the Hedgehog, you go around the whole game collecting rings. Right. You go around the whole game collecting social capital. But then who do you trust? Because when the band starts playing, nobody's in the lead. Who do you trust 
to lend some of that social capital to, right? So you've been doing weddings and you've been doing funerals and you've been doing, you've been preaching every week and you've been building social capital week in and week out weekends in the summer. You got these big weddings. People love you. You're, you're, you're soothing them or comforting them when they lose their loved ones and you're building all of this social capital. And here comes, I hate to keep on saying Fauci, right? But here comes somebody with some new information about a vaccine, about a test, about a clinical trial. How do you decide as a pastor with the platform, with those built relationships, who you trust? And what are you watching to figure out what information you're willing to share or not willing to share? Me personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a prayerful person. That is my, my personal practice. And if it don't feel right, I ain't moving on it. To my detriment, and I said this earlier, whatever, if I, will, I will err on the end of being ignorant or stoic or you know, old school versus me committing to something I'm not sure about. I personally don't trust the government. As you stated, the numbers have just been exposed to us throughout the countdown. I still believe it may be three times those numbers. Every time we get numbers, there's always an emphasis on the black community. White folks ain't dying, Hispanics ain't dying. Anybody else down but black folks? You ain't reporting it. We look, we look and we see these trucks outside these hospitals with bodies and freezes uh, everywhere else, but you ain't nobody reporting on the black community dying? So, so for me, whatever, we, we're too early into this, this, this era to say that for sure we know something because every, every time we get information, we're already late. We're already late, right? So when you said everything dropped in March, it was already out in, in 19. And something as early as summer of 19. So people been done. And so for me now, I, I'm, I'm just saying, I personally have to be prayerful about this. I have to be conscious about this. I got to consider because for me, uh, which in many cases we think are a thankless job, you always the one called to duty. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a call today, whatever. Hey, Pastor, we want you to go see so-and-so. She has COVID and so-and-so like they want you to go see. You want me to go to somebody that has COVID to pray? <laughs> really? I got five kids at home, a wife and a dog. I got parents. So like, you want me to go? You know what I'm saying? But still, you always call to the front line of duty, whatever. You got to make these hard choices and you got to have peace within yourself because you always undergun. You always held responsible. You're always looking to for you being the well of knowledge and we don't always have it. So I go back to what Ms. Um, Bingham mentioned about, you know, I got to make sure when I get this information where I got some questions to ask myself, it don't make sense to me. I can't report that. It, it don't sound right. I ain't, I ain't repeating that. So that's my position. That's my position with it. Now, Brother Womack been quiet, but he been, he dropped the mic on last time. I know he got something to say. Yeah, yeah didn't he? Uh, That's man. gonna preach. No, he no, the mic on. no, no. <laughs> I got just, to say. I'm just hanging out with y'all, man. Yeah, I'm just I'm just glad say. I'm on the porch with y'all. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you all kind of talked a, a, a lot about it. For me, how I discern is, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm having a conversation with my father. Like, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do or say, right? And so I'm seeking that space with him. Then. Then I'm hanging out with the folks that is going to impact the most. I'm running the streets like just this past week, bro, what y'all think about this vaccine? They like, man, I've been taught since I was born to not trust the government. So how are you going to get me to trust somebody with a vaccine, right? Just in, just on GP, right? That's just another thing I don't trust. And so I'm not going to assume the position like I'm the man of God and you need to listen to me. I'm like, no, I'm going to humble myself, right? And take in all that which is shared with me and then say, okay, as a shepherd now, how do I give voice to this? Tony Evans said this, and it still resonates with me. He said, if it's misty in the pulpit, then it's foggy in the pews. If our good news don't speak towards the injustice that take place in this world, 
then it's not the good news. You know, if it ain't good news for everybody, then it ain't the good news, right? Our God is one who is pro-humanity, pro-dignity, and pro-life. So that's another framework I use, right? Is it is it uplifting those, right? The humanity of all, the dignity of all, the life of all, right? If there's exceptions to that, that ain't my God. I know that, right? That's rich, man. Yeah, see, that's rich. <laughs> what they say that a preach right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, so so so, Doc, Doc, I'll, I'll ask you a question, Doctor Deborah. So. Uh, much people talk about analysis paralysis, right? This idea of we sit on it too long and it's done, right? Or or what happens if we don't make a decision in the moment? And you talked earlier about perfection being the the biggest um, what is it? Enemy of progress. Enemy of progress, mm -hmm. right? So most people are saying they're arguing backs against the wall. You need to get this vaccine yesterday, and so now you're putting the pressure. You're putting pressure on these folks that have a platform to make a decision and you're making them choose to the earlier point between two two losses, two debuts. And so, I mean, I mean, two L's. So if you got me choosing between two L's, you want me to use my platform to share this information that we know for years. And I'm talking 401 years, there's been exploitation of black bodies. We know that it's documented, right? And so you're asking me to use my platform prematurely because this information isn't rolled out. I don't understand it. I don't trust it completely. But if I don't do it now, then I'm going to cause harm to people, more people in the future. What, what would you suggest as a health professional, as a, as a trained epidemiologist, what would you suggest people do with that information or with the position they're being put in? So, so I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a get, y'all going to get the hybrid of uh, Dr. Deb. And I'll, I'll tell y'all a little funny. Everybody in my family calls me little Debbie because I have an aunt Debbie. And so I'm little Debbie in my family. So I'm gonna give y'all a little, little Debbie for a second. I always tell people it's only one thing that I give unconditionally, and that is my love. When I give my love and if I give my love, it is unconditional, the same way my God's love is. Everything else got all kinds of strings attached. My money, my time, my attention, me leveraging my name, me putting my word out, it's all kinds of strings attached to that. It's like, I, I have nothing more that I've learned growing up in America and matriculating in the places I've been, sitting at the tables I've sat at. It is quid pro quo. You want this? Quid pro quo, literally translated means this for that. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what you gonna give me? What you gonna do for me? In this conversation, it's what are you going to give my people? What are you going to do for my people? Which is why I keep going back to the question of what do we need? You know, I know people and, and we had a conversation last week with the president of the National Medical Association, which is the longest standing voice of black physicians, over 45,000 black physicians in that network. They now got a seat at the table. They can see behind the curtain. They're pressing to get information out to us that I would trust. I've heard about vaccine effectiveness. I've not actually not effectiveness. And I'm, a, I'm a, we're going to do a little quick epi lesson here. There's efficacy and there's effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Efficacy under ideal conditions. Effectiveness is how does it work in real life? Right, it's like having your vision of marriage be based on what you see on TV versus where the rubber meets the road and you actually married doing it day in and day out. Right. That's, a, that's a whole, that's a whole. That's a whole, we can do a whole nother. 
whole nother conversation on that. Same, same people, different podcasts. Yeah, right, we, yeah, we could, we could, we could. And so my thing is, I don't, even as an epidemiologist and a data person, I've only heard about efficacy. And I've not heard any of even the efficacy data broken down by race. You hear 94, 95%, everybody's going rah, rah, they so you know, happy it exceeded all expectations. Do those numbers hold across all racial groups? Because see, what the thing I know about statistics and data, you can cast your rod in a pool of data and pull out anything that you want to. You can pull out anything that you want to. And if you have an agenda, you will pull out the statistics and the numbers that match your agenda. Right. And the agenda right now is get black people to take this vaccine. And so I, I don't, it. I don't I try it. I ain't doing it. Hey, 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 but check this out. They want us to take it not for our sake, though. See, let's be real. They want us to take it. They want us to take it for they sake. Because if we don't take it, then we run the risk of being the spreaders in community. And is that the story? Hold on, hold on. So, but Dr. Deborah, is that the truth or is that the story? Let me tell you, we're going to give you another epi lesson. Y'all have all heard about herd immunity, right? You've heard about herd immunity. So, let me tell you what that is and how that works. The herd, right? It comes out of the, you know, kind of veterinary world and, and animals because diseases spread in animals the same way they spread in humans. And we've been told that COVID came from a bat population, okay? Herd, we are the herd. In order for the herd to be protected, you need some significant proportion of the herd to not be at risk. And the way you get protection is either through natural immunity because you get the disease and you recover or you get immunized. When you're immunized, it's some process, we can talk about that on a whole nother thing, where your body builds the antibodies or builds the little fighters to fight it off the same way it would have done if you had gotten it. So in order to get the herd immunized, because this is airborne, it's communicable, it's easy to pass, we need a significant proportion of the herd to not be at risk for spreading it to others. So, so before we started this, I told y'all I was going to be the ignorant person because I just sincerely don't know. Sincerely ignorant, not by choice. So I'm going to ask this question. How is it that natural or herd immunity could work? We would need somewhere, depending on who you ask, different, different epidemiologists come up with different numbers. The minimum would be 70% of the population. That's the minimum. It really, we will need about 80, I think 80, 85% of the population will either have to have COVID antibodies because they were sick and recovered or they got immunized. If we look at the 85% number, if every white person in America got the vaccine or had COVID and recovered, we would not hit herd immunity. Follow up and, question, follow yeah. up question, right? So if it needs 70, 85%, those are the numbers you're talking about. How does the vaccine work without 70 to 85% since this, this thing, this virus itself is evolving such that we can't keep up? How, how does the vaccine work, but herd immunity? And you know, I, I don't understand how you need this. Herd immunity is a concept. Herd immunity <laughs> okay. is a, a state, right? It's a, it's a state. We would get to herd immunity when the likelihood of somebody who's infected coming in contact with somebody who is susceptible or vulnerable or able to get the disease becomes very, very low, like, like almost close to zero. And the way that you do that is you've got to have enough people in the population who are immune, either because of natural immunity or immunization, such that the likelihood of people who are at risk and people who are 
a, a, a carrier and able to transmit, the likelihood of them coming together and coming in contact is really, really low. And we've done this with measles, with mumps, with polio, with all of these different um, diseases, we've been able to get to herd immunity. Because medical mistrust is so high, we will not get herd immunity if 50, 60% of the application says, hey, X, no. And that means all of the good non-Black people who don't also take the vaccine, because realize Black people are not the only people who are a hex non. 30, 35% of white people said, I won't get it either. So it'll be impossible for us to get the herd immunity if we can't overcome this trust hurdle. And it cannot be achieved with a 50% rejection rate among African-American. And if, if Hispanics who also have very high medical mistrust and our Latinx brothers and sisters, half of them are a no, we'll never get to herd immunity. So I'll just, so be, just be clear here. I'm not pushing an agenda at all. I'm gonna ask this question though. Um, um, Sarah Bailey says, how many people would die before herd immunity? That will, that's a complicated question. So let's just think about the rates, okay? At our peak in the way, in the first wave of this, the deaths we were experiencing about a thousand a day. We're now at about 3000 a day. Unintervened, that is our predictable trajectory. So if we don't get to herd immunity, that number will start to taper down because as people either have natural immunity or if people are immunized and develop immunity through vaccination, the likelihood of people who are susceptible coming into contact with people who are active cases does start to go down, but it doesn't go down enough to stop community spread. So it would be somewhere in the absence of a vaccine, what we can expect is we were really thousand deaths a day five months ago. And now we're at 3000 deaths a day. No intervention in the next five months, we could easily be at nine, 10,000 deaths a day. And as we're learning about the virus and learning that immunity might be short-lived, we're gonna need a real long-term solution because people are gonna have to get immunized potentially annually. You will need a seasonal immunization the same way you need with the flu. Well, well, many, so yeah. before you even go to the annual um, immunization, there was some conversation about with one of these um, vaccines that you would have to get it over a course of two or three times anyway. The, the, the two vaccines, and I wanna be real clear, there's like 120, 130 different vaccines uh, in, in trial phase right now, in different phases of clinical trials testing, right? We've heard about the two front runners. The FDA just approved the Pfizer vaccine. That is the one that's coming to Flint. It is a two dose vaccine. Go back to the distinction between efficacy and effectiveness. That 94, 95% number that we heard, that was under ideal conditions. That's with a massive staff of people giving people a first dose, hunting them down, giving them transportation vouchers, picking them up if they have to, to get them back to get that second dose within three to four weeks. When it's out in the real world, think about it. We, we've learned, this is the same way HPV vaccine works. It's a multi-dose vaccine. You don't get the same result if you don't follow the same protocol. So if you only get the first dose, remember the 94, 95% efficacy was based on two doses 
receive within a certain time period. If that doesn't happen, we might be looking at effectiveness, effectiveness, how it works in reality on the order of something in the teens, 14, 15% effectiveness. The one dose won't cut it. So this is like a heavy lift that's coming up. And again, the, the government, the healthcare system, and the leaders are gonna be relying on trusted and credible messengers in these communities with valid high medical mistrust to help usher this vaccine into the community. And I'm the, I ain't there yet. The reason why they're having to leverage trust is because they don't have it and they don't have it for a reason. And so that gives me just enough reason to say, or just enough room to say, hold on, let me pause. Let me ask the question. Let me watch and let me pray with my eyes open to the point that Pastor Tillman made, because you're, you're coming to me to leverage my trust because you don't have it. And you earn that mistrust. And so who am I to give it to you without you actually doing something, right? Like they say faith, faith without works is dead, right? At some point, your faith should mobilize you to do something, something different. So what is the government? What is What are these leaders? What are they doing different right now to garner my trust and rapidly provided they want to get this to roll out rapidly? And I think that's where you start talking about the pro quo. Like, what are you doing for me? Not what have you done for me lately? Like, but what are you doing for me now? Mm-hmm. But the question I have is, what's that? Like, like Sister Deborah said, what's the ask, right? When you right. come to me in my community and say, I need to gain trust, why? You see what I'm saying? If you can't be transparent with that, then I'm questioning your level of relationship with me. If you can't roll out, like she said, the difference between efficacy and effectiveness, this is the first I'm hearing this, right? And probably for other people, like, that should be your one-on-one rollout. Let's come up with some common language, right? So everybody is clear what we're talking about. When we talk about herd community, oh, I got it in a perfect world, but in an imperfect world or in the world where black and brown people exist, what does that look like? We not even having those conversations outside of this space, right? Where people can say, oh, I heard that, right? When you talk to me about efficacy, that ain't what that really means. That's what I want brothers and sisters to tell me when I walk in the streets. Like when I say efficacy, like, oh, you know what that means? Because there are some smart people in the community, right? That's walking the streets, right? That's preaching to us. We just amplifying what they already have said. Right. And remember the lie. We got just a few minutes, but I want to make sure y'all are clear on the lie. The lie is that we need them. The lie is that we need the vaccine. The lie is the push to get us to take it is for us. That's the lie. Mm -hmm. The truth is they need us. They need us to take the vaccine because if we don't, we will not get to herd immunity and their daughters and their sons and their grandmothers and their aunts and their neighbors will be at risk because too much of the population will not be immunized and will not have immunity to the disease. This is actually, and I wish we could shift the conversation because if you're standing there, how you approach somebody when you're doing them a favor is a little bit different than how you approach somebody when you need them. Yeah. If when you need them and I want to make sure that people are clear, we are needed, the faith community, the mental health community, the people on the front line who have trust and credibility and community are needed and are critical for us to move the needle. 
So Deborah, what would it, Doctor Deborah? I'm sorry. Would it be helpful if the if the way this was positioned was? Listen, I do need you to take this vaccine. So that part is true, right? Nothing changes about the approach. But the answer is, I this is what's in it for me. Would that make you feel more comfortable with someone rolling this out? Listen, I need you to take this vaccine. I need you to leverage your platform to get other people to take the vaccine. But this is what's in it for me. I'm not going to yeah. sell you on what's in it for you. I'm going to tell you what's in it for me and how that might benefit the community. That can be explained. That can be rolled out. But but could you could you could that be more palatable than the the guilt trip that I feel like we're getting around the vaccine? Guilt. I'm immune to guilt. That don't that just, that just don't even align with my faith. Me neither. That don't align <laughs> with my faith. Guilt is not a part of my faith. It just ain't. And so yeah, I, and that's why. And I do think we need to further unpack this because. And somebody's got to put something out. I've been doing work with the Rainbow Push Coalition, Reverend Jesse Jackson and some others. We created a public health manifesto that we've actually been able to grow legs to. And we were able to stop the testing of hydrochloroquine in prisoners. Mm -hmm. You know, most, a lot of people in prison, soap is a commodity. Soap is right. something you have to buy. It's not something that's provided. They have no chance to physically or socially distance. They weren't being provided soap. And then they're being sold this false hope and given a medication off label, a medication not designed for that, designed for something else that lo and behold, we find out does harm. So we had an ask put together. We put together an ask and we had about 17, 18 organizations, including the NAACP, Association of Black Nurses, National Black Press, all of these different groups. And we did outreach and dissemination nationally within our own community. Was everybody at the table that could have been at the table? Was everybody on board that could have been? No, but if we hadn't have taken the bold step and stepped out on the skinny branches to do something, I, I guarantee you they'd still be giving prisoners hydrochloroquine right now Doc, to their detriment. So we need to get the ass together. Doc, I got a question. And this is, this is one, I want to commend you for saying that, that guilt is not in your faith, right? Mm -hmm. And anyone who can say that, I want to commend them for saying that. Because I'll be honest with you, part of this idea of get a, getting a vaccine for me is driven by a bit of guilt. It's like Isaiah, you want to spend you want to spend time with your ancient Aunt John, Aunt, Aunt Joe. You want to spend time with your grandmother over Christmas, and you don't want Easter to look anything like Christmas looks. So you want to consider this vaccine, and you want to consider it for everyone that you know. And for me, I can tell you that I am moved by a bit of that guilt, the guilt that I might carry something to my loved ones, the the guilt that I might not be able to pull my family together like we have for years prior this in 2021, and so. I am moved a bit by the guilt. And I think any, any, any chance that I might share with people that they should take this vaccine will be me being moved by the guilt that today could be tomorrow if I don't do something different. Sure, I, that's real. But I think if you were moved by the knowledge, mm -hmm. if you were moved by the insight and the understanding and the trusted credible information of what this vaccine is, so, what's the risk to you. Notice they just said, if you're immunocompromised or pregnant, you, you shouldn't take it. That just came absolutely. out. Oh, wait a minute. I thought the whole point was the, the immunocompromised where the increased risk for adverse outcome, we wanted it on them. So now they're finding some side effects that weren't being talked about. So now they've changed the narrative. And I don't even have a problem with the narrative changing because there was a point when we said the world was flat. That was knowledge at the time. And then somebody ventured out to the end, didn't fall off and we figured out that wasn't true. But it, the, the, the mistrust is only fueled by a lack of transparency. I'm grown. 
I want to know. And I don't mind you saying this is what we understand right here, right now, today. But why should Pastor Tillman and Brother Womack have to now become many public health experts and do all this reading and wading through literature and documents that weren't even designed for them? Mm -hmm. that are written in a way and use language that doesn't communicate to them. Nobody even knew except me. I'm an epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. I know what an epidemic is. I keep explaining to people, I don't study skin. Now everybody knows what epidemiologist is. And now, <laughs> right, people say, you ever, would you study the skin? That would be epidermiology, but really that's dermatology, but no. <laughs> but now people know, I study disease outbreaks and I was working on the epidemic of violence and addiction before COVID, but the same skill sets apply. So herd immunity, efficacy versus effectiveness, a mRNA vaccine, a spike protein, all of these things I already know. I can't imagine the heavy lift for people like Pastor Tillman or even Renita who's in the health space to have to learn and understand and master all these concepts. We deserve credible information. All of these leaders, Fauci, Redfield, Collins, Dr. Burks, they need to be General Perna, who's the COO of Operation Warp Speed. He's the one who's doing all the supply chain and distribution. They need to be standing shoulder to shoulder every day for 30 minutes, giving us in digestible, clear terms where we are, what we know today, what we've learned. They need to have a ready conduit for feedback from people so we can ask questions and get them answered. And we deserve to have that every single day. You say people don't read and that's true, but half the stuff that's written about this is above the head of your mm -hmm. average human being, uh, average smart person Absolutely. who's making a difference in their community and in their sector cannot make heads or tails of these communications. All right, you got you got to let Pastor Tillman in because he's been trying to get in the double duck. Yeah. <laughs> but she 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 dropping like it's hot, dude. You got to make sure you take it off. You get a professional on the mic. You know what I'm saying? You got to take all this in. The first thing I want to say is that I want to ask you, what should we ask for? But then on the side of what um um what Brother Oliver was saying that when we deal with this guilt concept, I wrestle with it all the time because while I'm trying to serve everybody else, I have sick parents, I had home compromised, whatever. But I'm also considering as they come to you and they need you, that also puts you in a position of, as you said, as the oppressed to put myself at a disadvantage and mm -hmm. to let them use me again. Mm -hmm. Historically, as it comes to our community, whatever, you always, the, the test dummy, you the guinea pig, right? And then they're gonna use your emotions to press you into that it's been too long, right? But if we've been surviving with a mask and taking some elderberry, and some black seed, I think you ought to keep on doing it in the meantime till you make sure that you got something in place or whatever. As she said, that it's, it's facts, that you have something. Why it always has to come to the community that is, in, that is messed up the most. Why you ain't doing this at the hospital to people that's on the ventilators? Once you start there, that's where you're dying at. Did it work there? Did it work there? Right? We've seen the numbers going up. Is it working in the hospital where the people actually have it? Versus you come to our community and make me feel that I feel the pressure to, to let you use my good name uh -huh. to, to get out of my community, whatever, and expose. And then afterwards, we're in the, in the reading history books 20, 30 years from now that you use us again and we the next Tuskegee experience. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That, that, that's my worry about that. The, the emotionalism that we have that plays into the plan that was already set of how to use this community again because we're always at the short end of the stick. And that's what should we ask? And on the other end, 
do we consider what we're compromising by letting the guilt use us as a platform? Let me say something before the sister jump in, right? I'll say this. Sister Deborah ain't came to us saying, I need you to say X, Y, and Z. That already speaks to the relationship. So if you come to me asking me to do X, Y, and Z to gain trust, you can already eliminate that avenue. Mm -hmm. a, a real friend ain't gonna come and ask you to do something that they know historically they haven't showed up, right? And, and, and honor the relationship, right? But even then, when they come, I still want to, my mindset is still thinking about Sister Bigham as the advocate. Mm -hmm. What should we ask? What you should gotta, we ask? You got to take, um, personally, I believe that you need to ask the people what they need. We go to um, the hierarchy of needs. What what's what's going on with folks like you said um pastor tillman you know we've been surviving for this long what is the most prevalent need for the folks that's one of the things that you need to to to, to put on the needs list and of course we do an assessment a quick assessment like what are the needs that we we have right now what do the people need mental health is is a thing um and then what, what do you say in this conversation alone um we need Funding, like like Dr. Deb said, we need an earmarked item, line item for mental health funding because it is ravaging the folks. They can't even think about taking a vaccine if they can't even get out the bed. I mean, it's a whole problem that I'm seeing on a daily basis. So my need or my ask would be, can you earmark dollars for collaborations with the churches so that the pastors won't be um, overwhelmed with all the folks coming back in the church, whenever that is, with all these people who are inundated with all these mental um, illnesses that have been compounded from this pandemic. Um, so that would be one of my asks that we have um, funding for partnerships to just take care of the folks, um, just basic needs of mental health. That would be my ask, amongst other things. But so I'm going to tell you one thing about uh, about the way these podcasts work. If we go anything longer than an hour, we're not going to get people to come back. So gotcha. no, we didn't have it moving, which means people go want to come back. But we want to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up in a, in a very non-traditional way. I'm going to wrap it up with some questions some things for us to think about. Mm -hmm. um, one, and I got this from Heatherland in the, in the time feed. She said, what would Dr. Fauci or other leaders have to do to earn trust? And I think that's the first stage. The first stage here is earning some trust. Mm -hmm. So is reframing the way vaccines are rolled out. Is that a way of establishing trust? Is mandating that all data be broken down by race? Is that a way of establishing trust? Is publicly acknowledging previous wrongs, and we know this in faith as a, as a first step, to, to being forgiven, right? Publicly acknowledging those wrongs. Is that a step in the right direction? And then I think the last question that I'll ask, and I'll borrow this from my brother Moses Bingham, he says, who needs to be at the table when these mm -hmm. things are happening? Who are mm -hmm. the credible messengers to share that trust is being brokered? And so I'll just leave you with those questions. One, I wanna thank you all for being candid, for being uncut, for being open, for being yourselves. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to the follow-up to this conversation, one, about vaccines. But then I think we also have a conversation about marriage this, that was that was kind of coming up here for a minute there. And we might, have, we might have even more fun. I saw 
the Mrs. Womack and Tillman. And I saw Mr. Bingham pop up in the feed. So they, they checking up on y'all trying to see what y'all saying. So, <laughs> so you got a conversation coming when you jump off of here anyway. But I want to thank you all again. This has been amazing. And you all are amazing people that are doing amazing things. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sir. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. it.